KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Okay, for today's podcast, I'm going to go a little off topic to look at a pair of musicals that had their world premieres here in San Diego and are now on Broadway. But both Allegiance and Bright Star involve creative talent that filmgoers will readily recognize. Actor George Takei calls Allegiance his legacy project because it deals with issues close to his heart about Japanese-American internment during World War II. And Bright Star has a book by actor, director, comedian Steve Martin. Both works were generating a lot of buzz for this year's Tony Award nominations. But when the nominations were announced on May 3rd, Allegiance was left out in the cold, while Bright Star walked away with an impressive five nominations, including Best Musical. Both musicals made their world premiere at the Old Globe Theater. The Globe's artistic director, Barry Edelstein, explains the Globe's commitment to providing a launching pad for new American musicals. Why is the musical important to the Globe? Well, you're right, the musical is the quintessential American theatrical form. Nobody does them better than Americans. And um, this meeting of storytelling through song and storytelling through text is something that um, has, especially in the 20th century, been raised to an extraordinary level of excellence by American writers and composers and theater people. Also, interestingly, in the case of Bright Star, there's a very conscious effort by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell to capture that kind of um, classic American musical feeling, which I think they have. The Globe has originated many, many musicals going back to the mid-1980s, I think largely because it was a private, personal interest of Jack O'Brien, who was the artistic director of the theater at the time, although the Globe had done musicals before Jack's time here. But he really had distinguished himself as a director of musicals and started creating them here at the Globe. And then many of them moved on to future success in New York and elsewhere around the country. So it's become something that the Globe's audience has really come to expect. We do it at a very high level of excellence. And so we wish to continue that commitment. At a press conference on August 28, 2014, Edelstein recounted how Bright Star came to the Globe. Bright Star is something um, exceedingly rare in the American theater, a wholly original new musical. The Globe's been involved with the project for a little bit over two years now. Uh, The first inkling I had of it was before I was the artistic director at the Globe. Uh, Steve Martin and I have known each other for a while, and um, we were working on a production of Shakespeare's As You Like It in New York, for which Steve had composed a score of uh, banjo and bluegrass and roots music. And one day over lunch, He was telling me about this extraordinary new collaboration that he was developing with Edie Brickell, another giant in American entertainment. That collaboration, of course, led to their album Love Has Come For You and the Grammy award-winning title song from that album. And Steve said, you know, Edie and I have this inkling about maybe working on a musical. A year later, I found myself the artistic director of one of the great producers of musical theater in the United States. And I said, hey, Steve, you remember you told me about that musical? And he sent me a draft of Bright Star. Different from the show that's going to premiere uh, at the Globe after now two years of development. But even then, in a very early draft, fresh, fun, and deeply, deeply moving. And I remember vividly sitting down to read it. And when I got to the big moment in the show, Uh, literally weeping. And I called Steve and I said, please tell Edie, the Globe would love to do this. Let's get started. Bright Star, created by Steve Martin and Edie Burkell, had its world premiere in September of 2014 at the Old Globe Theater. The musical was inspired by a true story about a woman with a secret and a young man returning from war and wanting to start a new life as a writer. Hollywood, which produced a steady flow of musicals for decades, has more recently seemed to have forgotten how to break into song. But on stage, this artifice can seem like the most natural thing if you know how to do it right. For Brickell, it seems perfectly natural. Music was in the air. Music was the food of our household. If my mom was struggling or in a mood, she'd put on music. So she always had on music. Because <laughs> uh, she was a very hard-working woman, and I admired the, 
the energy that she brought to the house when she played music and danced around and forgot her troubles. Raquel and Martin are newbies to the musical form. They've chosen a style of music for Bright Star, namely bluegrass, which is unconventional for the stage. But Edelstein says there's nothing naive going on here. Instead, there's a very high degree of sophistication. Here's my interview with Steve Martin as the musical was beginning rehearsals at the Old Globe Theater in September of 2014. And you may be surprised to find out what makes this wild and crazy guy cry. I had read that you said you accidentally got into stand-up comedy. Do you feel that where you are now writing a musical play is something that is any more planned or accidental? Well, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't planned from 10 or 15 years ago, but it was planned in the last two or three years because since I started working with Edie Brickell and started writing music with her, we had talked about musicals and how much we love them and uh, how much we were moved by them, especially the ones we grew up with. We knew that our music was heartfelt and uh, essentially narrative. Not that musical music has to be narrative, but uh, we thought that our music sort of fit in to the musical style. And once we found a story uh, that we liked, then we we just started working on it. So what were the musicals you grew up with that you fell in love with? Sound of Music, uh, Oklahoma was one of the first musicals I heard. Music Man was a musical I just adored. What do you talk, what do you talk, what do you talk, what do you talk? He's a music man. He's a what? He's a what? He's a music man and he sells clarinets to the kids in the town with the big trombones and the rat-a-tat drums. In fact, I memorized most of it. It was one of the first albums I bought. I, I was introduced to it before the movie was made through records and uh, even memorized the opening number, which is, I, I think, one of the earliest rap songs, meaning that it was uh, rhythmic speaking. Well, I don't know much about bands, but I do know you can't make a living selling big trombones, no, sir. Mandolin picks, perhaps, and here and there a goose harp. No, the fellow sells bands, boys' bands. I don't know how he does it. But he lives like a king, and he dallies, and he gathers, and he plucks, and he shines. And when the man dances, certainly, boys, what else? The piper pays him. Yes, sir. So I had a good education with these great, great musicals. Now, musicals had a peak of popularity in movies, like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And then it's kind of waned since then. But musicals have really always remained very strong in theater. What do you think makes them so much more kind of accessible and acceptable within the kind of a theatrical realm? They come and they go in the movies. There's been some recent ones, you know, uh, Les Miserables, I think, and I'd have to look at the history of it. They, they kind of come and go, I, I don't know. Uh, also that there were these great um, musicals that were so popular that they just were made into movies. I don't think there's been any that have been so popular, certainly Spamalot, and that probably will be made into a movie, I don't know. But there, there was a lot of great minds looking at the musical in the 40s and 50s. Now when you're writing a musical, how do you decide at what point do you need the dialogue to then become a song or to then become move into dance? It just becomes apparent. Um, you have to be careful that the song doesn't reiterate the scene. It can certainly express an emotion. And sometimes the song becomes a kind of a story in itself, or it can become an expression of the singer's emotion in, in case of a love song. So, I mean, that's, that's just part of what you have to do and <laughs> to figure out when the song comes or when it doesn't come. Because I, I don't like to go to musicals that, where they sing all the way through. I like it when there's a scene, there's a respite from the music, and they talk, and then they sing. I always like it when the song starts up. It always makes me cry a little bit. <laughs> well, somebody, I think, said that people break into song when kind of words fail them or when they run out of words that are appropriate. It might be. Uh, you know, I haven't looked at it that way. But, you know, whenever you get to a point in the scene where one character, not in these words, but says, and what do you think about that? <laughs> you feel a song coming on. 
at the press conference, the first song involves the young man. Can you tell me a little bit or set up a little bit what that? Yes, that's song? the opening scene. Now, by the way, all the scenes at the press conference were, were truncated, but it's, it's a young man coming home from World War II. He's essentially saying, I'm home and I'm ready for my life to begin. And you follow him on his journey from wherever he was dropped off. The, the, the play takes place in North Carolina in 1945. I'm ready for my life to begin. I'm ready for it all to start. My heart's about to bust. Don't lead the way I must. Follow my own bright star. You never know what life will bring. There isn't any reason or rhyme. Hopes and dreams and fine imaginings, they happen in their own good time. Bright star, keep shining for me. Shine on and see. And you follow him through song on, on his way home to where he sees his father. And he has, he has decided while he was away what he wants to do in his life and he can't wait to tell his father and his mother what he's decided to become. Now the press conference gave a hint of what the actual stage performance will be like, mm -hmm. but it seems like there's a lot of fluidity in terms of the movement in time and place. Yes, it was a conception on the part of uh, Walter Bobby, the director, and Josh Rhodes, choreographer, and that includes Eugene Lee, the uh, set designer, how, how the stage could be fluid so it wasn't, uh, you know, lights go dark and then lights come up as the scenes change, because there's a lot of locations and it would be uh, difficult to, to change sets all the time. And it's actually quite beautiful to watch how it works. And the transitions are done musically. There's always music going on during the transitions from scene to scene. And also it, it helps the audience get comfortable with the music because you hear the music sometimes before a song comes on, you'll hear the themes of that song, or you'll hear a reprise of a song as the sets are being changed that are relevant, I hope, to the scenes. How would you describe the collaboration between you and Edie Brickell? How do you work together creating these songs? It's been practically effortless. We, we kind of run everything by each other, except when it comes to music, I essentially compose chords and, and kind of background melodies. It hasn't always worked this way, I'm being very general, but background melodies. And then she runs off with it and writes lyrics and often what they call top line melodies on, and comes, comes back with a song. And then we either tweak it where it needs to be tweaked. It's been an amazing uh, process. And she's proven to be an incredible uh, musical lyric writer that has gone beyond anything I've ever seen her do before. Meaning she can write lyrics for multiple voices in a, in a scene. There might be three or four people singing at the same time, or at, yeah, at the same time. And when I was speaking to her, I, I mentioned that in a musical sometimes, you know, is it difficult to see people just break into song? And for her, she goes like, well, for me, it's like people break into song all the time. Like for her, it didn't yeah. seem like there's the... Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious for you, what role did music play in your life? Was it something that was always there? Like I say, I, I grew up with musicals as being very emotional, very emotional form. So as I watch our rehearsals, I never, never find it odd. In fact, I always find it quite moving or funny or whatever it needs to be when the when the music slips in, you know, when you watch a movie, there's always music going and you just kind of don't notice it. And it's really part of our American landscape to hear background music to everything. And in this case, uh, the actors are participating. I, I think we're so used to it that it doesn't look funny at all. And when did you actually start playing an instrument? When I was 16, I started playing the banjo and never stopped. <laughs> How did you learn? I heard that you actually learned by slowing down some records? Yeah, that was a, I, I thought I invented it, but I found out it was a technique that a lot of players used back in days when there weren't instructors in your local area. You could take a, a 33 RPM record, tune your instrument down, in this case a banjo, tune it down and play it back at 16. And you could pick out the notes. 
and so I could copy Earl Scruggs and just figure out what he was doing by playing it back very, very slowly. And it was a, it was a learning how to do something any way you could. I had a friend, John McEwen, who went on to play with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, who played banjo, and he taught me some things. I think I took one lesson. I had books. I had the Pete Seeger book. I had the Earl Scruggs book. And learned things. Even Earl Scruggs himself taught me how to play a song, because I happened to meet him when I was 21 or so. So with all this love that you had for music, how did you then get kind of sidetracked into stand-up and then kind of get back to it? I uh, always wanted to be a performer. That was really first. And when I got enough material together to do a comedy act, I, have, I was also doing comedy magic. So at the time in Orange County, there were these folk hootenanny folk clubs that were springing up. So that was an opportunity to be on stage. And I put everything in that I had just to gain time, performing time. First I had like 10 minutes and 15 minutes. And part of that was I could play a funny song or pretend to. A lot of my act was based on things not working. Like the magic act, I found that when things went bad, I could get some laughs. Or when the jokes weren't that funny, I could get laughs. Or I don't know, you know, I had all kinds of routines with the banjo. I didn't do this, but for example, I think uh, Jerry Van Dyke, which was, who is Dick's brother, would play and get his finger stuck in the uh, strings of the banjo, you know, those kind of things. And I read also that uh, taking philosophy in college was something that kind of changed your outlook on... Well, that was, that was teaching me to question everything, and I, I applied it to comedy. And I knew there was a certain uh, form of comedy just handed down through the nightclubs. And there were certain other people certainly questioning it, that, you know, Bob Newhart and Bill Cosby and all this. But I was, I was really looking at it I was really trying to bust up the, what we'd call the kind of Las Vegas nightclub style, which was joke and punchline, and I just examined that as much as I could and tried to turn it on its head, even to the point that maybe I was par- parodying it. Have you taken that approach to musical theater, questioning it and breaking it down? When no. Nope. No. I've I found that as I've gotten older, i found the hardest thing to do. It's kind of relatively easy to parody something. The hardest thing to do is modernizing something to do what they did as well. And um, that's, that's the real challenge, to uh, get something with a solid story, with solid music, that makes you laugh and cry. <laughs> there was a second number that was performed that involved the uh, female lead. Can you uh, set up what that song was? Yes, uh, this is uh, really the one of the central stories in our story. There's several stories in the story. This is a woman who's in her late 30s, and she runs a uh, sort of a New Yorker-style magazine, but out of Asheville, and she's publishing Southern Writers, and it's been her dream since she was a little girl. And the, um, the other workers that she works with who are younger, they're trying to, it's established early on that she's a little uptight and they ask her to go dancing with them to a, you know, at the bowling alley where all the soldiers coming home and everything's very joyful and she, they, and she refuses. And she says, I'll go some other night. And they say, no, you never go, you never go out. She sings a song called Back in the Day. And she says, back in the day, I would have, I would have gone with you. When she was younger, she was carefree. Way back in the day, I would have gone And then the story, as she sings that song, the stage transitions to when she was 16. And you see her as she was then. And then the story begins to explain how she became a little morose or quiet and a little closed down. And you see what happened to her in, these, over, in this incident and why it affected her over the last 20 years, 22 years.
You and Edie both express this love and appreciation for musicals and this kind of elegance of style of, of past things. But this is your first musical for both of you. Do you feel that you came at it with kind of fresh eyes, even though you appreciated all that came before? Do you feel that you kind of approached it with a little bit of an outsider's point of view? Well, I found I've always uh, been lucky first time out because you're fairly innocent and you'll, you might do things that you wouldn't do your third time out. Uh, you know, I've learned that lesson or something, I don't know. And you're, you're just full of so, so much enthusiasm and joy about it. I don't know, I feel uh, very good about uh, what we've done and it's filled with a real uh, artistic spirit. Like we haven't been beaten down. <laughs> And you were in the film Pennies from Heaven, which is a very interesting take on musicals. And I was wondering if having done that and appreciated the, the BBC series that came before that, if that had any kind of influence on the way you looked at approaching a musical. Well, Pennies from Heaven is a brilliant work by Dennis Potter. It's almost the inverse of a regular upbeat musical because it is so bleak. But the, his device, every, if you look at all the, all the works of Dennis Potter, every, every one of them has a, some kind of brilliant device operating it. In this case, Pennies from Heaven, it's people lip-syncing to old 30s records. And it's always a surprise. It could be a man lip-syncing to a female voice from the 30s. You know, we're so far from that. <laughs> you know, these are, you know, people actually singing live on stage. There's, there's a, we have something, I think, very interesting story-wise in our musical. It's not bland by any means. It's actually kind of frightening. Um, but also, I think that's what keeps people interested today, too. Of course, you can't reveal too much about No, your because musical. it would ruin the, the play for people, you know. Talk a little bit about working with The Globe and how this experience has been bringing it to the stage. Well, I've had a, a long, long <clears throat> I've had a long relationship with Barry Edelstein. He's uh, directed at least two or three of my plays, and he even uh, suggested I adapt the German play The Underpants, which was written in the 20s as a political commentary, I guess. It worked out really well, and so he, he contacted me, I guess a year and a half ago, and said, what have you been working on? And I said, this. And he said, I'd like to read it. I sent it to him, and he said, I'd like to do it. And we've workshopped it several times, and now we're here. And the, the, the facilities here are great. The, the people here, the staff is so great, incredibly professional. I doubt that we'll run up against this kind of talent and facilities again in the production of this play. At the press conference, one of the songs that was done uh, ended in the... Walter Bobby came out and said, wait, wait, the, a couple of the lyrics were changed. So can you talk a little bit about the changes that are going on and, and is it still something that's like in the works? To well, in that, in that particular case, we had added a lyric because the choreographer said, I need some time to accomplish X. Can you add a lyric? And Edie um, did, and it was just that morning. So the poor, uh, our noble actress, Carmen Cusack, uh, did the best she could. Uh, but because it was being filmed, we wanted to do it again. She, our, our lead actress is so brilliant, Carmen Cusack. Uh, she has, she's widely experienced. She played in, um, I always forget the name of that, Wicked, Wicked. I always want a Wicked Witch, Wicked, in London. And now I think this is a role is just gonna show everybody exactly what she can do both acting and singing. Uh, but anyway, um, things are being changed uh, constantly. Uh, and I, I'll tell you why. Because the more rehearsal you get, the more the actors get better, and the tighter the show becomes. The tighter the show becomes, the more you can see it as a whole. And when you see it as a whole, you understand more about it and you think, oh, we don't need that certain line or this, this line would be better if it were this line or that because, and you, or you see, oh, uh, a story plot, I've complete point, I've completely overlooked here. Uh, 
because you, there's things you just can't understand while you read it. You have to see it, and you have to see it move along quickly, like the audience will. That's what you're catching as it, as it progresses to a more fully formed, performed play. And what do you hope audiences take away from this? What do you hope the impact is? I hope that they're moved, and I hope that they laugh, and I hope they enjoy it, and then walk out talking. And is this a, an experience that you want to repeat again? Putting together a musical? Well, I like a rest, but I, I really am living with this right now. I don't really have any plans for the future. I've thought of maybe a smaller one, maybe you know, a one-act musical might be an interesting form, but you know, everything about a musical is, I've, I've learned a story. I feel confident we can write the music. I, I, I feel like the story is really crucial. If you look back on all these great musicals, they have a really good story and brilliant turns. I mean, at the end of Gypsy, the end of the first act, I can, I, when I watched it, I thought, let's see, I, I can see them in, uh, in conference. We need a, a good song to end the first act. Let's see, how about Everything's Coming Up Roses? <laughs> Considering where you started and, and how you first gained a lot of fame and attention, do you, are you surprised at where you are now? And do you feel that people have kind of accepted the way you've reinvented yourself a number of times? Well, if you look at where I started, I certainly have reinvented myself. But it has been incremental, uh, both to me and maybe to the audience. So I haven't met a lot of resistance because it's been so sneaky. But I, I've just, uh, I wouldn't want to be doing still today what I did then. I just feel odd. Uh, but I am going off, uh, in fact, tomorrow to go to Florida to do some shows with Marty Short. And, you know, we perform and joke around, kid around. So still doing that. I still do live shows with uh, a band. We play on stage and it's music and it's comedy. And I like that. I love telling a joke as much as I do writing one. Would you describe this musical as a comedy or no. a drama? I would call it a drama with music. I mean, with comedy. A drama has some comedy. You know, there's some funny characters in it. People, people laugh through it, but throughout. But essentially, it's a drama. All right, I want to thank you very okay. much for your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. That was Steve Martin in an interview I did on September 2nd, 2014 at the Old Globe Theater. He's just received his first Tony Award nomination for writing the book for Bright Star and for co-writing the score with Edie Brickell. Now I want to play my interview with George Takei from September 14, 2012, as he was beginning rehearsals for Allegiance at the Old Globe Theater. Takei is probably best known to people as Sulu in the original Star Trek TV series and subsequent movies. He's also become a social media superstar with nearly 10 million Facebook followers. He started his Facebook page as a means of generating awareness about allegiance, and social media celebrity followed. It's not uncommon for his posts to have tens of thousands of comments and or shares, and Takei uses his popularity to help promote causes he believes in. The two most prominent ones are raising awareness about the Japanese-American internment and gay rights, two issues that he sees as more closely tied than you might think. Allegiance, a new American musical, is the story of the Kimura family set against the Japanese-American internment during World War II. Sixty years after the attack on Pearl Harbor, a chance meeting forces World War II veteran Sam Kimura to remember his family's relocation from their California farm to the Hart Mountain internment camp. Here's my interview with George Takei. And sorry, but he only mentioned Star Trek once because there were so many other things to talk about. This play, Allegiance, came about kind of by happenstance, so by a chance meeting you had with the creators. Tell me a little bit about how you first met them. Well, not really by happenstance, because this has been a mission in my life uh, to raise the awareness of the interment uh, chapter of American history. But uh, how um, the, the creative people with this show and I came together is a uh, fortuitous and prophetic uh, meeting. It happened in a Broadway theater. As a matter of fact, twice in a row in the theater. We went to the theater one night, and there were these two guys seated in front of us. One of them recognized my voice, and we had a, a nice chit-chat, and then another chit-chat during intermission. The next night, we went to, uh, to see uh, 
a Tony Award-winning musical, uh, musical titled uh, In the Heights. And uh, not in front of us uh, this time, but in the very same row, a few seats away, were the same two guys. And uh, the seats were occupied between us, so uh, we just waved at them. And uh, the play began. If you know the play In the Heights, um, it's about a Puerto Rican family in New York. And uh, near the end of the first act, the father has a, a song called Inutil, which means uh, useless. He has a bright daughter, shows great promise, and he wants to do so much for her. But because of uh, the socioeconomic circumstances that uh, they uh, are in, he can't do what he wants to do for his daughter. And for some odd reason, that triggered my memory of the uh, anguish my father particularly, but both my parents were experiencing in the uh, Arkansas internment camp during the Second World War. And it touched me so that I was in tears. And of course, the inhibition comes immediately after that, and the lights go blazing on, and I'm quickly trying to dry my tears when the two guys came over to chit-chat again. And they asked me why I was in tears, and I told them. They happened to be Lorenzo Tioni and Jay Kuo. The, uh, Jay is the composer-lyricist, an enormously gifted uh, uh, musician, and uh, Lorenzo is the uh, writer-producer. And so uh, the conversation began during that brief intermission period, and uh, they took great interest in the uh, subject. And so after the play, we went out for drinks and chatted some more. And then we decided to, to have dinner together the following night. And from that prophetic meeting in the theater came Allegiance. Now you've described this as your legacy project? I have. And what do you <coughs> mean by that? Well, I think um, our democracy is a great democracy. My father used to say both the strength and the weakness of our democracy is in the fact that it is a people's democracy. It can be as great as we, people can be, but it's as fallible as people are. Our democracy, uh, democracy faltered during the Second World War. I think it's important for this nation to know and learn from where we faltered I think we learn more from those chapters than we do from the glorious chapters that we have plenty of. And uh, the internment story is still little known and even less understood. I'm always surprised when I go east of the Rockies and I happen to uh, be talking about the internment, my childhood experience, uh, people who seem otherwise well-informed and educated people say to me, I had no idea something like that happened in the United States. And so I do feel that uh, with this musical, that's going to reach many, many people, and through the music of J. Quo, reach them by the heart, as well as the mind, uh, is going to uh, make people, one, discuss, and then do something about it to make our democracy a truer democracy. And what are some of your most vivid memories uh, related to the internment camps? Well, I was a five-year-old when we uh, were incarcerated. My most vivid memory, I think, is uh, that day when the soldiers came marching up, uh, two soldiers came marching up our driveway. They had bayoneted rifles, and I remember the glinting of that, those bayonets stomped up our front porch and banged on the front door and ordered our family out. But being a child from five to eight years old, my uh, other memories are that of a child. Very innocent, uh, lots of fun, great discoveries that I made. And it, it's in retrospect, and particularly as a teenager discussing our family, with my father particularly, that I have uh, that story in context. 
but my most vivid memory is that of the uh, first day when the soldiers came. This is a very serious topic, yet the play finds a lot of places for humor, and especially through your character. What is the importance, do you feel, of using humor to engage people when they're watching a play like this? Well, it reaches the whole person, and that is also the true uh, experience. Yes, it was torturous and harrowing at times, but people still fell in love. They got married, had children. And I, our barrack was right across from the mess hall. And um, my mother put us to bed, but uh, uh, occasionally, every month and a half or so, the, the administration would allow the teenagers to put on dances, which you see in our musical. And the music came wafting over. So I relate very much to the 1940s big band music, the Andrews Sisters, all that sound. Uh, so there was joy. You can't survive something like that it, with all grim suffering. There, we made our joy. I remember other uh, vivid memories. Um, we were to take only what we could carry. So people packed only the things that they thought they, they would absolutely need, absolute essentials. Yet, some women felt that the kimonos were essential enough uh, to take with them. And uh, on Obon Festival uh, night, all of a sudden, that dark, barren background of black tar paper barracks, all in military uniformity, uh, would explode with colors. The women were in their kimonos, and we heard Japanese folk songs, and they danced in rhythm to that. It was beautiful and so unusual, like a rare flower blossoming. And uh, so, you know, there were joyful moments, and we reflect that as well as the harrowing experiences. Tell me a little bit about doing this production, because I understand it is still a work in progress. So are you still getting changes and script <laughs> changes at the last minute? We're doing an, creating an original musical. It is a work in progress, and that is very intensely challenging. We get rewrites that morning, and we're rehearsing it and performing it at night. And uh, <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, it's uh, very tough, but we tough it through. Uh, we have a group of extremely professional and very talented uh, actor-singers. Well, I think I saw on Facebook you had a little pray for me. I just got new pages. <laughs> yes, answered prayers. <laughs> and this is the first time you're doing musical, correct? Yes. Oh, no, actually oh, not. No? Um, the very first musical I did was right out of uh, college. At, I was a theater student at UCLA. And uh, one of our uh, uh, playwriting teachers worked in concert with uh, the music uh, professor from the music, music department and created a civil rights musical. That was during the civil rights period, back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And we, I, did, uh, I was cast in this uh, civil rights musical called Fly Blackbird. I was the lone Asian amongst these uh, students uh, fighting for civil rights for African Americans and for American, the American way, and uh, I, got, I had a song number there titled uh, The Gong Song. Why is, and the word we were playing with was Oriental, not Asian. Why is an Oriental detective always accompanied by a gong, uh, criticizing Hollywood stereotypes? So that was my very first musical, what, 50 years ago? And uh, I've had sprinkled in my career what uh, the Brits call pantos, pantomime. It's an um, English holiday theatrical confection that has song and dance, vaudeville, uh, comedy, and uh, acrobatics sometimes. Uh, and I've sung a, a song or two on those as well. I've done three pantomimes in England. <clears throat> so it sounds like Political activism and your art have been intertwined from the very beginning. That's correct. That's correct. 
it was a civil rights musical. We sang at um, a rally, um, civil rights rally, where uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was the speaker, and uh, we got a chance to meet him uh, privately after the uh, concert, and uh, it was an absolutely unforgettable thrill to briefly chat with him and shake his hand. These hand this hand shook his hand. Do you think your interest in politics stems from your father and, and what he taught you? Well, when I was a teenager, I had these intense discussions with my father. My father felt that uh, it was the absence of Japanese Americans in the mainstream of American society, which includes politics, uh, was in part what contributed to the uh, ease with which we were incarcerated. And so uh, uh, before I was even a boating gauge, my father took me to the uh, Adlai Stevenson for President headquarters and he volunteered me. Uh, but also uh, a political campaign has a lot of theatrical elements which kind of fed my uh, inborn nature, I think. There's suspense. There's excitement, there's, uh, you know, build, 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 and ecstatic elation or black tragedy. <laughs> well, now you've reached a point of popularity with social media and Twitter and Facebook. Um, Don't forget Star Trek. Yes, and Star Trek. And Howard Stern. <laughs> and Howard Stern. I mean, all these things have converged to make you this kind of social media superstar. Do you feel obligated to kind of use that to help advance some of these issues that you believe in? Indeed I do. And I do uh, use um, my Facebook for some advocacy. You, you know, you want to hold your audience and you don't ha hold them with all advocacy or all education or all awareness raising. Um, you throw in uh, some giggles and some uh, uh, kittens and you know, uh, some humor and, and you uh, keep them coming daily. You feed them with fun and humor and occasionally you have a blog or maybe a comment or two that uh, makes people hopefully think and maybe take action. Did you ever think you'd be in a position to kind of influence politics and, and social thinking the way you have? Well, you know, the, the mission of politics is to connect with people and to connect with ideas and to bring about social change. And uh, I think um, drama is a wonderful, powerful, way of doing that, and activism is another way of doing it. And I've been blessed with the kind of uh, notoriety my, that my profession has given me to, be, to have access to your cameras or microphones and uh, amplify uh, or multiply my visibility. And uh, uh, I try to use that for that purpose. There are a lot of younger celebrities and stars out there who haven't managed to master things like Facebook and Twitter. And you've come into this, you know, celebrity through there. And has that surprised you? Is this something that kind of took you a little bit by surprise? It has taken me by surprise. I'm, I'm really, you know, thrown aback by all this because, to be honest, it began as a way to get the word out on allegiance. Uh, and, you know, we want, and particularly because the subject matter, as I said, is so little known or not known at all by some parts of the country that we needed to uh, not only get the word out on allegiance, but to give people some background, some understanding of what allegiance is about. And uh, so I began with my core base, which are uh, sci-fi fans, the nerds and geeks. And uh, I thought, you know, if I can get them, they're activists too, if I can get them energized, then we can get them to buy tickets and, and then see the show and spread the word. Uh, but then it continued to grow and grow. It really is amazing, this thing called social media. It just growed and growed like Topsy, and here we are. I had no idea it would go past a quarter of a, 
uh, 2.5 million people. It's really amazing. I'm still of my generation and I'm absolutely astounded by the success that uh, Facebook, my, as Facebook has enjoyed. Well, like your character in the play Allegiance, you use humor also to engage people quite well. Exactly. Uh, humor is what, uh, well, humor is the honey with which you catch the bees <laughs> and then the sting. <laughs> and in addition to trying to make people aware of the Japanese internment camps, Japanese America. Uh, Japanese we American. weren't incarcerated by the Japanese. We were incarcerated by America, U.S. internment camps. Mm -hmm. We had American soldiers guarding over us. It was our U.S. Constitution that was egregiously violated. I stand corrected. But you also use your celebrity to also be active for gay rights as well. Absolutely. It's the same issue. Mm -hmm. Same issue. We were incarcerated by very real barbed wire offenses. But the LGBT group is another group of Americans incarcerated, incarcerated by legalistic barbed wire offenses, laws that imprison them from equality with not only the rest, the rest of the country, but you know what is to me absolutely baffling is in the case of the incarceration of Japanese Americans, we look different. We look like the people who bombed Pearl Harbor, but with the LGBT community, we are literally members of our family. We're sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers in some cases. And to deny equality to our own flesh and blood is to me the cruelest, most inhuman and irrational act. It's the same issue. Our inability to recognize that equality is what America is all about. Liberty and justice for all. That's the pledge. And I learned that pledge incarcerated behind U.S. barbed wire fences. I could see the barbed wire fence in the sentry towers right outside my schoolhouse window in a black tar paper barrack as I recited the words, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, which ends with, with liberty and justice for all, which includes LGBT people. They are members of our own family, our own flesh and blood. How irrational, how cruel can we get? And since you do come from that background, did you find it hard to kind of separate the notion of what America stands for and sometimes what it ends up being because of some of the people that are in politics or in the government? Well, as my father said, our democracy is made up of fallible human beings. And he told me about the Attorney General in California who took an oath on the Constitution of the United States, but wanted to be elected governor of the state. And he saw that the most popular issue back in the early 40s was the get rid of the Japs movement. So this Attorney General who took that oath on the Constitution ran on that issue and won on that issue and became the governor of the state of California and later was appointed by President General Eisenhower, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower as the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. His name is Earl Warren. He was a fallible American. What are you most proud of in this play Allegiance? You know, it's hard to pinpoint one thing because during technical rehearsals, I was sitting in the house watching the technical part. It's a boring, uh, time-consuming, and energy-draining process. But we'd been rehearsing in the rehearsal hall, the play, and I saw that play on stage with the sets. It's a memory play, and it has that fluidity of mem memories and then the lights come on and the sound you know it's hard to, to 
take one thing out. The performers are glorious, but you know, it's the whole theatrical experience that really makes that statement. I'm most proud of that entire statement. And the final element after technicals that we added to the uh, whole production is the audience. Every single night, we've had standing ovations. It is a glorious feeling. And, you know, one can, from an actor's standpoint, I can say the standing ovations, but no, it's the whole. And it's knowing that the message of this play and the joy, as well as the profound and potent statement about our democracy is what's being shared. That's what I'm most proud of. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Listen to Oji. Take a look at page, paper very bad. Oji, look at Keiko, see how Keiko very sad. But paper also change, if take and fall this way. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'll have a podcast coming up about a first-time filmmaker trying to make a film in Kenya about music, politics, and trains, and a crew call with stunt drivers. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can also check out the archives featuring podcasts on black exploitation, Mexican extreme cinema, Monsterpalooza, and the TCM Classic Film Festival at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So until our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. Remember song I teach you? Our mountain can be moved stone by stone, eh? KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.